Yo, everyone, make sure you stick around at the end of this episode to check out the Patreon episode preview. In this chat with guest Thomas Flight, we get into feature film debuts. We talk about what are some of our favorite feature film debuts, what makes a great feature film debut, etc., etc. So make sure you check that goodness out at the end of the episode. All right, later. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Yeah, Show Me the Meaning. Whoa. Oh man! I'm sorry. Whoa. I'm sorry. Was... I'm sorry. I'm uh, my. Uh, I've been nursing a very sore throat over the past few days. I'm not in a yelling mood. All right. Well, what's up, everybody? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond, as always. Hey, gang. And joining us, you may recognize this name from many, many, many videos on the Wisecrack channel, director, writer, many, producer. Many, many uh, he's also been on Show Me the Meaning. He's also on all the other podcasts. He's just basically all around Wisecrack bro, deluxe, luxurious, uh, Lux Luther. What else we got here? Welcome to the show, Lux. What's up, hey, brother? Hey, what's up, everyone? It's funny you start with deluxe because that's what everyone calls my brother. Oh, really? Well, he's Daniel Luxemburg, so... Does his first name start with a D? Oh. Yeah, there we go. I cracked the case. <laughs> uh, Nick yeah. Lux? M. Lux? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, Micro yeah, yeah. Lux is somehow what people called me for a long time, even though I'm much larger than my brother, but that's life. <laughs> well, maybe it was, I guess it was ironic, I guess. Is it like microdosing? Like we're going to get a little bit of microluxing in this show? Is yeah, that... that would actually be fairly appropriate to my lifestyle, so maybe that is sort of the... Maybe that, was sort of, that was years ago, but maybe that was foresight. Perfect, perfect. Well, this week we're going to be talking about the newly released, hotly discussed, um, critically divisive film directed by Chloe Zhao, Eternals. It's the latest installment in the MCU. It stars Gemma Chan, Richard Madden, Kamel Nanjiani, Leah McHugh, Brian Brian Tyree Henry, Lauren Ridloff, Barry, is it Keegan? It's an Irish last name. I think it's Keegan. I think it's Keegan. Is it Keegan? It might be Keegan. I'm not sure. Yeah, so sorry if you uh, speak Irish, please correct us. Byron Keegan, Kagan, Kogan, something along those lines. Don Lee, Kit Harrington, Salma Hayek, Angelina Jolie. And if you stayed for the uh, post-credit sequence, Harry Styles is in this too. So um, anyway, uh, as always, we're going to go around and we're going to do our first impressions. But before we do, I'm just going to give you a quick little elevator pitch. Look, following the events of Avengers Endgame, an unexpected tragedy forces the Eternals, who are these ancient alien-type being things, sort of, whatever, we'll figure that out, who have been living in secret on Earth for thousands of years, forces them out of the shadows to reunite against mankind's most ancient enemy, the Deviants, and then you get this sprawling two and a half hour, is it an epic? We don't know, we'll see how it is, but before we get into the first impressions, I do have a little bit of housekeeping, I just gotta give a couple of updates. Remember, we do have a Twitter page, so please go ahead and give us a follow, it's smtm underscore pod, smtm underscore pod. Also, if you like our podcast, please make sure you rate and review it on Apple Podcasts because it really helps us grow the pod so we can keep diving into these sick movies. Or if you don't use Apple Pod, if it's Spotify, do the same thing or whatever it is that you listen to us on. Please just boost us up, give us a rating and a review. Um, As I said, follow us on Twitter. And also we've been doing a bunch of Patreon bonus episodes. So if you're a patron, make sure you go check those out. If you're not a patron, go to patreon.com slash wisecrack so you can check that out. We did Philosophy of Acting a couple weeks ago, which we've gotten some really good feedback on. People seem to have loved us diving into what makes a good performance. We talk about some of our favorite performances. Uh, The last Patreon episode that we did, we talked about debut films, like what makes a great debut film and maybe what are some of the best debut films that have ever been done. And And, uh, Thomas, Thomas Flight stuck around for that conversation as well. It was a great convo. That was sick, yeah. Um, and so you can access all that stuff at patreon.com slash wisecrack for just as little as two bucks. And um, at the end of this episode, we're also going to play a little teaser of some of the bonus content that we've been releasing. And then we do want to just give a reminder as well that next week we're going to be doing our big giant mailbag episode where we're going to go through the backlog of mailbags and voicemails and things like that that we haven't been able to address. So make sure you send us in your thoughts, hot takes, critical analysis, art theory film theory stuff send that in you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co all right now let's talk eternals let's get into this shtick um lux first impressions brother i don't know how many times you've seen this film i know you're familiar with the kind of original source material first impressions on this film and yeah. then we'll start peeling things back yeah we yeah. get in the source material later the movie is 
fine to somewhere between fine and pretty good (laughs) but it's by far the movie marvel movie that suffers the most for being a marvel movie i think i think is my biggest takeaway from it i think it could have been a really cool what do you you mean by that like if it wasn't a marvel movie it would have been better yeah because it's in the the mcu kind of obligations to like both the marvel house style formula plot wise and also sort of to the rest of the mcu i think we could have had a really cool introspective interesting movie on our hands and a cool take on superheroes and there were moments of this movie that did do that work. And then there are also moments of this movie where, like, cool actors are punching dogs made out of spaghetti. And, like, that's not really my jam so much. Uh, so it, okay. it fluctuated a lot and sort of had some really great stuff. But then also because it was doing Marvel movie things kind of didn't live up to its potential, I don't think. Yeah, I did one talking point that we could probably address is a lot of people were saying this would have been great as a series or like a mini series or something like that. So that's something we can think about as well. And and maybe why with Disney Plus and with, with these other possibilities, why wasn't that the route taken? Were they trying to do the billion dollar um, like IP with this? Is that what kind of like led them in this direction? Like that's something we can think about. Why was this the choice, you know? Yeah, I have a theory about that, um, which we can get cool. into later uh, if you'd like to when we address that kind of stuff. But I have been thinking a lot about why this was a movie. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Raymond, what about you, brother? Well, boys, I told you I've been feeling under the weather and I think it's because <laughs> I have Eternals fever. Kingo, Druig, Sprite, the gang is all here. Even uh, Icarus, and old Thena herself. You've seen him on backpacks. You've seen him on uh, lunchboxes. And now for a limited time only, you can see them up on the silver screen where they belong. Uh, Gilgamesh, Festus, all your favorites. <laughs> even Ajak, played by screen legend Selma Hayek in a career-defining role. They take on wow, the deviants this in is their sarcasm. eternal, eternal struggle. Oh my god. Run, don't walk to the theaters. <laughs> To see this movie big, bold, and loud. But parents be warned, while this is a four-quadrant pleaser, there are some big ideas that they grapple with that may be a little bit difficult for Junior to understand, such as when will humanity get its act together and unite to confront and kill God himself? So uh, I'm excited to talk about this with you, gentlemen. And there's a little bit of sexy time at the beginning of the film. There's some that... hot stuff, uh, but uh, in yeah. all sincerity, I, I mostly agree with uh, Mr. Michael Luxemburg on this one. I, I think uh, there's some interesting stuff. I love uh, love Chloe Zhao's movies, but I think this would be better if it were more of a Chloe Zhao movie than a Marvel movie. And uh, I'm curious to hear what you think on it, Austin. This is so interesting because I know you're such a huge Chloe Zhao fan, and I don't know that it's I that wonder, interesting. <laughs> but. Well, because I wonder, does does when somebody has such a unique style and has such a, um, a, a certain history with certain kind of characteristics when they get brought into these bigger budget films, when they get brought into these huge platform um, assets, digital assets in the form of a movie, like, do they lose that? Like, does it go away? And this is, this is a great question sure. in, like, for like art theory, film theory, yeah, and yeah. just kind of understanding. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we could unpack it a little bit. I will say just in short, I think Chloe Zhao is a wonderful filmmaker. I, I like her aesthetic approach and I've liked every movie of hers, um, up to, and maybe including aspects of this. And for all the trash that I talk about big blockbuster superhero movies, I think that credit where credit is due, Marvel is doing something right. You, you can't have a winning streak this long if you're, not, if you're not delivering something that is connecting with audiences in a major way. I just think that maybe to Lux's point, Chloe Zhao and Marvel are just a little bit oil and water. I just, I just don't think this is a great blend of elements for filmic success, but we'll get into it. Yeah, so I went and I saw this in the theater last night. And so for me, one of the very kind of exciting things about being out of lockdown now is, you know, in Australia, we're just emerging in New South Wales in Sydney in particular, we're just emerging. So we've been out for about a month. And I went to Sydney Film Fest, so I saw a couple films there in the theater. And then this time was just me and my girl in this tiny little quaint theater in the eastern suburbs called The Ritz. If you're from the Sydney area, you know where it is in Randwick. And it's like this old-timey theater where they've even got like music from like the 40s and 50s playing. And you walk in. And, and so that was so nice. It's this cute little marquee billboard out front in this tiny little town. And there was nobody there because it was, you know, a Wednesday night at 830 
And so it was just kind of cr- cool to cruise in there and watch a film in that setting. So for me, that was really enjoyable. And I think that this is the kind of film that works great on the big screen. Um, but I was a little bored at times. I thought that the film felt a little disjointed to me. Um, I thought it both tried to do too much and also too little, and that might seem contradictory, but certain aspects it tried to do too much, and certain other aspects it probably needed a little bit more fleshing out. And um, I thought the performances were fine. I know some people have been a little bit um, critical of Gemma Chan for being wooden in some... I, I didn't get that. I kind of thought she was being stoic. I, I don't think we criticize a lot of times dude superhero-type performers when they're being... Stoic, so I, I I just feel like that's a little bit sort of like what did they expect from um, this character? I think it kind of fit well. All these all these people are like yeah. thirty thousand years old. They're 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 gonna I... kind of be over it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think right. it's also just a wild criticism of the movie because it's like the only Marvel movie where you have an assortment of characters who aren't just like ten percent different versions of the same type of other, guy. Wait, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're constantly quipping. And it's always just ten percent different versions of the same type of guy. And at least this movie was like. A million different types of guy, and yeah. everyone was playing them differently, and like they, they were discernible. Guy, they got a big guy. They got a flying guy. <laughs> yeah, but with a little I, bit yeah. of personality too. That yeah. that's like a big swing for Marvel. And I liked that it wasn't just like a, a patriotic, nationalistic sort of uh, a piece, piece of propaganda for you know America or the West. Um, obviously, there's still sort of like some interesting themes about like humanity and like the humans on Earth are somehow the humans that are better than all other organisms that have ever existed at li- a life in the entire universe because somehow the humans on Earth are the only ones that have inspired these um, figures to somehow forsake their destiny. So. I don't know. There's a little bit of self-aggrandizing, like, ah, humans are the best Yeah, Selma Hayek goes, you know, Thanos wiped out (laughs) half the universe in one snap, and then the people of this planet brought everyone back. And I was like, it was more more like five movie stars. It wasn't wasn't like Johnny Lunchpail, oh, we got to bring everyone back from the snap. It was, you know, like Iron Man and Captain America. They They weren't just normal people. Yeah, there was a little, there was a little cheesy kind of humanism in there, but yeah, I can deal with that. I can deal with that. Hold on, let's let's hold these thoughts. Let's start peeling this madness apart. Um, uh, we kind of covered the first impressions thing. Lux, remember the thing that you were going to say earlier, Raymond? Get all your thoughts out. But first, before we do that, I do got to make sure we give a shout to our sponsor of this week's episode, which is Skillshare. Look, y'all know the deal. Skillshare is an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you're passionate about. And this is why Skillshare is really so cool because you can unleash your creativity and you can pursue passions right from the convenience of your own home. They offer thousands of classes uh, on like iPhone photography, drone filming, computer programming and coding and UX and UI design and uh, how to like modify your photos and use cool filters. They also do stuff on like editing, classes for improving your productivity, all kinds of things. Literally, if there's something that you're interested in exploring, you can find a class on Skillshare that'll help you explore that passion. So if you're interested in exploring your creativity and connecting with some cool people, go to Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. So that's Skillshare.com slash SMTM, free trial of the premium membership, or of course you can click the link down below. Go check out Skillshare. All right, Lux, I cut you off before I jumped into that. What were you going to say, dude? Oh, I was just going to say that like, it's also notable in terms of like this humanism thing that like, Thor's from fucking Asgard and a bunch of the superheroes got their powers from magical cubes from space and so like the way that they're like humans on earth are very special it's like only because like a bunch of really strange coincidences happen like even the humans they're picking out of like the special humans are like like Captain you know Captain Marvel's from outer space like it's 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 a very arbitrary claim that they're making as far as the humanism in this movie. Like, the the bright line and, like, the moving goalpost of what constitutes the humans of Earth is very weird to me. Well, what they're, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying... They, there was that thing where it's, like, they love and they create, and, of course, they do bad things, too, but it's this kind of, like, cheesy, sentimental, like, just affirm the humanness of the human, and when you do that, then that's, like, the greatest thing sort of thing, which, again, yes, affirm the humanness of a human in your daily life, but I'm not sure we should somehow exalt that to like the level of like this this romanticism that is like we should save the universe because humans are so cool because of their odd intrinsic imperfections because we love and we create and I just 
I don't know. It just felt like really self-aggrandizing and a little bit overly sentimental. It's extremely sentimental and self-aggrandizing. And like I'm saying, it's like it, it not only that, but like the argument falls apart under like the barest of scrutiny. Like a number of these characters are from outer space who saved the world. Like it wasn't <laughs> humanity on its own. So like it it is the sentimental claim that is like supposed to be like emotionally evocative and to like put us in this place where we like feel with Salma Hayek and we feel with Gemma Chan. But it's like if you're a person who like is feeling but also thinking about the movie immediately the claim is like well this is dog shit like this isn't a real argument you're making ajack come on you're 30,000 years old well, there's you can also, think better than this there's also this really interesting thing where the Faustus Faustus Festus character Festus, um Festus for the rest is of us. yeah he he sort of he introduces technology right and there's this like thing like are humans ready to Advance. So there's this also this theory of like technological evolution or technological development that seems to be quite eh, teleological, but that also makes me think like, okay, so there's a really interesting like, what is the driver of history? What is the driver of evolution and somehow like the advancement of the species? And what it implies is that it implies that the more technology that is introduced, um, the more they're reaching this apex or this zenith. And then it reaches World War II and it's like, oh, but the, it was too much. You know, we shouldn't have given them technology because now humans are actually bad because if you give them too much power, they'll use it to destroy. And so there's this kind of like interesting tension that they're trying to walk. And then it's like, whose fault is it? Is it humanity's fault that they weren't ready to deal with the technology? Or is it this fucking like alien's fault for giving it to them? And then he actually like fucked everything up. Like, like whose fault is it? And what really drives history? And, and I think there's some interesting things to think about there. But They make yeah. one claim about what drives history that I kind of actually liked in one of the moments of the movie that I was particularly excited about, which is when he talks about how, like, Erisham, the reason they're not allowed to in, in, get involved isn't, like, this pure claim of letting humanity do it on their own and taking off the training wheels. It's that conflict and wars pushes technology forward and pushes societies forward and that as they evolve through these conflicts, they become more and more the type of species that can feed the baby eternal that's growing inside the earth. And, like... I found that to be at least like a compelling claim that conflict and violence and and sort of the inevitable collision of of culture and technology and and desire like is what drives humanity forward and continues evolution continues progress and I found that to be underexplored in a lot of ways but at least like compelling and like specific in a way that I didn't expect the problem a is movie though to have. is is that the alien is the one who introduces the technology. So it's not that humans do it on their own. It's that they're getting this sort of like, even though it's not a god, like that's warring against the gods, there's still some sort of like external influence that is guiding, that is leading to the conflicts and the wars that then exponentially produce more innovation. But you still have this this technological tinkerer that is standing in the background. So I thought that was kind of a strange, like I didn't know what they were trying to say there. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. And there's a lot of the movie that I feel that way about. I do, I do remember yeah. at one point when I was watching it where um, I think they're in like Babylon or wherever and they come in and he's building a steam engine and they go, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't give the Babylonians a steam engine. They're not ready for that or something. They like rain that in, make it a plow. A and plow. Like, oh, fine. Yeah. It, it's called a plow because it plows or, um, yeah, I mean, there is... There is this weird kind of, I don't know that it's judgmental or whatever, is like, I don't know, maybe they weren't ready for steam engines because they hadn't developed steam engines yet. <laughs> like, knowing knowing that in, in like, I don't know, maybe you guys have different theories on this, but I I personally don't think that, like, all of our technological advancements have been a uh, an alien handing down you know, fire from the gods or a, a, a monolith pushing people forward like in 2001 A Space Odyssey. But it was, there was a weird thing. I don't really know a, exactly how to evaluate it with the notion of just like civilizations would just reach a point of stasis if Brian Tyree Henry didn't step in at some point and give yeah. them a fucking plow. Like they, they have the, they have like the hanging gardens of Babylon. It's what they're famous for. I'm sure they figured out like agriculture and plows and shit. Right, like, they solved irrigation, so, like, why not plows? 
But that's what I wonder. Was the implication that they solved irrigation because he invented that technology for them? And then whatever the kind of um, let's go let's go regressively, whatever the previous investment or uh, invention was, is that it was all a product of him? Or does he just come in every once in a while with like a oh this is going to be a sort of disruptive technology, right? Like that's what I kind of didn't understand. How much did he influence the technological evolution of human history? I thought it was the latter, but I'm not sure. Okay. So just like super disruptive technology. So the internet was was uh, was the Eternals. They they gave us the internet. Well, he'd retired by then. <laughs> uh, no, I like I, I don't know. I mean, did he make the Zune or whatever? Like it seems like he's he's really hung up his uh, his technology cleats there and I think some of that has to you know, he blames himself for um nuclear annihilation and stuff like that which is an interesting idea but one of those things that's like i don't really know if you want to evoke uh this kind of thing in a in like a kids movie um you know and unless you can really commit the time once again like lux was saying unless you can really commit the time to like picking apart the nuances of these things and stuff i i I, um i saw someone in the chat saying that like it's unfair to say like Obviously, we know that that character wasn't responsible for creating the bomb. He wasn't like one of the guys in the Manhattan Project or whatever. Um, but it is still, I, I think that people are glomming on to that moment in, in the movie because it is like, I don't know, maybe a little bit tone deaf for a movie that's largely about like Angelina Jolie dance fighting against aliens and stuff. Um but this to come back to like the overall pacing of the film, you know, was it you, Lux, or Austin that said it, it kind of feels simultaneously too short and too long? I think that was that, an Austin I, gem. Yeah, I think a product of that too is that like when you're trying to introduce this many new characters, I think when Marvel when Marvel really sings, it's because they they take advantage of the investment that the audience has made in the past ten years of their movies, like. Endgame may be three hours long, but it kind of goes by like that just because it it jumps from scene to scene. It's, you know, there may be a hundred characters in it, but they, they've put in the work, you know, whether you want to call that cinema or traditional filmmaking, what whatever label you want to slap on it, like Marvel has put in the legwork to, to earn a three-hour runtime with 30 characters on the marquee. I think with this movie, you're kind of thrown into the deep end. You have to get to know all of these characters, get to know their power sets, get to know their their psychology, get to know their their ideas, their desires, etc. And then, uh, you know, they all have to do a thing by the end of it, and you're you're still kind of like, oh, I'm just I'm just now getting my sea legs with this. So I do think that maybe. Maybe this would have been better suited for a, a miniseries or, you know, maybe they could have soft peddled some of these characters into other movies to introduce them before throwing them all out at once. But I, I think when you hire Chloe Zhao, who's a great filmmaker, you let her make a film, not necessarily a, a, a miniseries. But I yeah, don't know. Well, I mean, I think you're, when you mentioned Chloe Zhao. And I think this is that element, this like sort of having a million characters I don't know, I think is one of the places where her direction and also the performance of the actors like actually was really impressive to me in this movie where like. I expected to be like, I don't understand any of these people. Like, I expected to just be confused for the whole movie because I was like, this is, I'm meeting an entire Thanksgiving worth of family, like, mm-hmm. for two and a half hours. It's going to be a lot. And I thought they yeah. had some, like, really impressively quickly done scenes that, like, really were, like, kind of, in, like, almost, like, improv style. Someone shows up and is like, my name is Mr. Guns and I love guns. That's my deal. <laughs> like, it was, like, really effective sort of character clarification and distinction and differentiation that I thought was pretty impressive. Um, but like even, and they, I think it was like an admirable job, but it was like an uphill battle, you know, like that was just like the, the size of the task was so daunting that like, even though I think they did a really good job on a performance and direction level of distinguishing and defining the characters, like it was never going to be good enough. Cause like two and a half hours is what, like we're talking 210 minutes. That's less than 21 minutes per character to be the central figure of a scene, assuming that there's no scenes with anyone else. Right. 
and like that's just not enough time. I would have liked to have seen, you know how sometimes you'll get a series where it'll be not episodic, it'll still be kind of it'll have its through line, but each episode will focus a little bit more on one of the characters. I'd love to get a little bit more like what the fuck was Druig? Was he creating a cult in that that village where he was? You know, he's like I some sort of commune. Yeah, another interesting yeah, idea like that they don't really get to develop. Too yeah. Much. Yeah. You know, I would have loved to have known more like okay, so he gets disaffected after um you know, when they're in in uh, in South America or Central America in what was it 1571 or whatever yeah. it was, and then he kind of they've got a few hundred years. Like, what does he do? Does he go into the jungle and create this sort of like peaceful communal society? And how much is he controlling them? And does do they worship him, or is he just one of them? Like, I would have loved to know a little bit more about these individual characters and what they were doing in the meantime. Flesh out some of their own internal tensions. Um, give us a little bit more screen time for some of them too. I mean, obviously it was focused on Circe and Icarus, kind of as being like the primary ones and you get the little bit with sprite where who's she's there but then kind of disappears for a bit and then comes back in again at the end kind of kind of fucking things up and i don't know it just felt very inconsistent because they were trying to do so much and then because of that they ended up doing so little with like character development the things that create the drama that get us invested in what is otherwise a sort of more slow meditative story if it's just bang 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 shoot them up um good guys versus bad guys, which Avengers do very well, or I'm sorry, which MCU does very well, while adding certain subtleties of character development, that's one thing. But this was much more of trying to be a sort of like meditative character exploration, but then it was trying to kind of like have the bang bang shoot him up as well and I don't know it just it, 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 it I think it didn't quite find the balance yeah you're getting it like sort of exactly like I actually sort of have enabled me to to think about my it suffers from being a Marvel movie claim in like the exact way I want to put it which is that like one of my problems with Marvel movies is that they create emotional stakes by being like if they don't do the thing everyone dies and we hate it when everyone dies that's the worst but this movie wasn't really doing that work. It was trying to do the emotional work of the reason we want things to happen is because we care about these characters. We care about their conflicts, their feelings. But then it spends the back third of the movie being like, if we don't do the thing, everyone dies. Um, because that's what Marvel movies always do. And <laughs> right. because of that, it doesn't pay, It doesn't give enough time to really pay off or interact with like some work that ranges from decent to good throughout the entire first two thirds of the movie. And it's like... It's frustrating because, like, I would like to see the the natural third act of that movie or whatever that isn't, like, a big hand is coming. But it's, like... <laughs> cabin in the Woods. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Like, I would like I was, to see I was thinking more, the but... Cabin in the Woods ending. Yeah. yeah. The, I, I do really hope that... They, they have a scene in this at the end where they're, like, people are still confused at where this huge fucking statue in the middle of the ocean came from. I hope every movie after this also has a TV in the background where they're just, like... Years have gone by and still no answers on this enormous statue in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Hopefully it's the cue for like Namor to show up and be like, hey, this big hand fucked up Atlantis. Who did this? And yeah, someone, someone dropped a statue on my city. Yeah. Someone dropped a statue under my city coming upward somehow. This makes very little sense to me, the king of the bottom of the ocean. I do want to give a quick shout. We got a couple of uh, a couple of comments here. Jason says that I think the Eternals is just the MCU personifying and making characters out of evolution. So that's the process of evolution personified, characterized. What do we think about that? Is that kind of is there something in there? You know, you have the kind of uh, uh, an efficient cause in the form of Festus, who is like this driver. Of, of technological innovation um, what would the other like would they be characteristics of a sort of like historical biological evolutionary process is that, is that something we can see there what do we think that kind of I guess makes it is a kind of a natural way to segue into me complaining about the original Eternals comic book okay because that's very much kind of the juice of the original Eternals comic is sort of so Jack Kirby left so to top line thing the Eternals original comic is my least favorite thing my favorite comic book artist ever made. <laughs> so that's just to start from there. But so Jack Kirby left Marvel, went to DC, did the New Gods, which, oh, so good. We love it. We love the New Gods. <laughs> Isn't Ava DuVernay doing that? She me? was, but I think they have shelved it, which makes me very upset. It's probably the first time I got angry at movie news in a long time because I'd kind of come jaded about it. But then I heard that and I got like actually pissed. Then he came back to Marvel and he was like, I'm not done with cosmic weird shit yet. And for some reason, I'm into the vaguely racist, new world, new agey text, The Chariot of the Gods. 
And so drawing on the trade of the gods basically the idea that aliens would come to Earth and like teach taught humans how to do all the crazy stuff, build the pyramids, invent a plow, etc. Um, he sort of expands that idea out to these Eternals who've been here the whole time and have intervened in humanity in various ways, the fastest ways and, and others. And the deviants are a lot more humanized in that story and are a lot more intervening in humanity's affairs in a lot more tricky ways than just like trying to eat guys. And I think in that setting, there is a real argument that it's a large story about evolution and the role of like external influences and guiding and all that stuff. I think the movie, largely because of what it does to the deviants, doesn't quite get there in the same way for me doesn't quite like talk about evolution in quite the same way because it does feel really like the only person who like they're really strict about not messing with humanity or interfering in humanity in a way that the books aren't quite as strict about. And so I think evolution is like a big theme of the movie, but I feel like like what's what does Icarus represent in that setting? What does Druig represent in that setting? I guess communitarianism. So Druig scratch Druig. But like what does Icarus do? What does Cersei do for that? What does Sprite do for that is a little bit iffy i think i don't think you're i think jason's like tagging like sort of a key concept that you kind of have to be thinking about well is cersei supposed to be like uh like uh elemental differentiation you know because she can turn like rocks into water so you have certain like let's say inorganic life um as an element and then you have um sprite who's like narrative story imagination i mean i'm literally i'm just kind of like yeah like I, I'm just trying to figure a very, out you a know, very um, cool thread that they another thread that they, you don't really get to see them pull but they mention that she is kind of like creating mythology throughout the ages that yeah you know, and obviously the characters are named after famous characters from you know the epic of Gilgamesh is the oldest book ever written like I do I really love the notion of these folks being like the the people that other folks tell stories about but you only kind of get yeah. that in flashbacks here and there. and um, That's so much yeah, cooler in the movie know. than in the books. Because in the books, like, Thena and Athena both exist. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And so Athena just, Athena just, like, shows up sometimes. And she's like, no, I'll be, like, the on-the-ground version. You, like, hang out in Olympus or whatever. Or I think maybe space. Uh, I was just going to say, speaking of credits, uh, M.E. was asking in the chat about why Chloe Zhao has two screenwriting credits on this. Uh, I just wanted to... Uh, chime in on that wga arbitration is really weird but uh basically chloe zhao has a credit for screenplay on this she also has a co-writing credit anytime you see screenwriters connected by an ampersand instead of the word and um that means they worked on the script as a team so the reason that she's credited twice on the screenplay is that she she did a draft as a team with um uh i can't remember her her co-writer's name uh, and then she did a, uh, uh, Patrick Burley was her co-writer for a draft. Ryan Furpo and Kaz Furpo, who get the story credit, uh, that often means that they probably did the first draft. Uh, Ryan Furpo and Kaz Furpo also get a screenplay credit. Uh, then Chloe Zhao and Patrick Burley are, are uh, uh, credited as a screenwriting team. And then Chloe Zhao probably did the final draft herself. So WGR, uh, uh, excuse me, WGA arbitration is really, really weird, Emmy, but uh, that, that's a good question you brought up in the chat. I just wanted to take a second to uh, clarify that. How, how much do you think she was able to tweak? I mean, because so much is talked about the kind of cohesiveness of the MCU, which has allowed it to, to be so successful over what, almost what, what is it, 15, 20 years now? Um, and that it's being driven by a sort of like top-down machine. So how much freedom do you think somebody like Chloe Zhao has in writing the story and, and artistic vision things I mean, like that i can i can only speculate i know there was a lot of to do made about her kind of having a bit more leash than than most of the filmmakers in the mcu have had i think she said in several interviews that uh she didn't uh, uh, not that she didn't use a second unit but that she uh she was able to shoot the mm -hmm. action scenes which marvel notoriously uh doesn't generally let um uh their directors shoot the action scenes because so much of that stuff is pre-vised. It's carried off by uh, by other filmmakers. They they want their directors to focus more on, um, you know, the acting beats, storytelling, what have you. It's just, it's more a division of labor thing. That's not exclusive to Marvel. That happens in a lot of blockbuster films. I would imagine that, I know she was developing this project before she won the Oscar. This may actually have something to do with the uh, the screenwriting arbitration, is that Maybe before she had a little bit less control, she was part of a writing team that was being a, a mm. bit more hands-on from from Marvel. And then maybe uh, after the Oscar, 
Marvel wanted uh, to say this is a Chloe Zhao picture and, and maybe gave her the reins fully after that. Who knows? Um, so much of this stuff happens behind the scenes. Um, and even in instances of movies really falling apart where like directors get changed midstream and stuff like that, um, they they typically play that stuff pretty close to the chest. And, and all these contracts have, you know, NDAs out the wazoo. Um, but yeah, I, uh, from what I've heard, I, I think she had a, a good amount of creative control, which I think for Marvel is a little bit of a win-win because if the movie does well, they can say, okay, see, we, we, we get a little bit of credit um, for, you know, letting a, an auteur do her thing. Uh, and if the movie doesn't do so well, which it looks like maybe it's uh, it's not doing as hot, at least not, uh, not keeping track or keeping pace with Shang-Chi, um, they can probably use that uh and point to that in the future and say okay well look we gave we gave one director the reins on one of these movies it didn't do so hot so that's why we're so controlling over the next 20 or whatever um but who knows if i can recklessly speculate i do think that they um there are a couple mcu movies where it feels like they've sort of been like these are the key structural tent poles of mcu movies and in between kind of do whatever you want i'm thinking like thor ragnarok is kind of like that where it has kind of a different feel and different vibe between its different like key classically mcu beats uh winter soldiers kind of like that i thought eternals kind of falls into that camp as well and it kind of feels like when they mm. have people they trust or people they want to sort of like to borrow a wrestling term like put over as a director or put over as the company mm. they're willing to sort of give them free space between these like key kind of critical story beats or like timing beats, like the big fight at the end, like the sort of action intro stuff, uh, the sort of midpoint kind of mega crisis, like which are classic screenwriting beats, but Marvel really leans into those in very specific ways. Um, and it kind of felt like this was one of those movies where they were like, all right, you have to hit these three things or these four things, whatever the rest of it, do your thing. Um, and that's kind of how the movie felt to me in a lot of ways. And it's similar to Ragnarok and Winter Soldier, although sadly it didn't work for me as well as Ragnarok or the Winter Soldier, which is too bad because I was really excited about this movie. Or at least really excited about Chloe Zhao. Yeah, I want to jump back into the chat real quick and uh, talk about like a theme. Raymond said, I love me a prime mover. And I did wonder this not, at not one me, point. Raymond. It was a, uh, a, a listener, Raymond. <laughs> Alternate Raymond. Yeah, listener, Raymond. Yes, uh, in the chat. And and I did wonder this. It seems that I, I kind of was trying to understand the the metaphysics, for lack of a better term, of this film. And uh, you kind of get like this theory that these deviants were created and that they had certain capacities and that those capacities were outside the scope of the design, right? And it's a really... It, it's kind of like an easy little, like, I created it, but there was a design flaw, you know, kind of thing. It's like, oh, no, you know, like, I, I dang it. Like, there was a, like a, a trip wire, and it, it caused a fuse break, and now they are hunters, and they're apex predators, rather than kind of just doing their, their simple job. And so I did wonder, is this kind of, is this film giving us a sort of a god theory of a kind of winding the clock and then letting it go? And then every once in a while you get sort of like these angelic beings that kind of intervene only when necessary at the prescripted times, whether it's with technology or fighting the deviants, but that they don't interfere too much in human to human relationships outside of those stipulations. Like what is the what is the theology, what is the cosmology, what is the metaphysic that this film is actually offering to us? I mean, I think that is basically it, right? Like, that is one of the classically Marvel Celestials thing is, like, mm. they're around, they're super powerful, they show up sometimes, and everyone's scared, afraid of them. <laughs> um, yeah. And, like, that sounds like God to me. And, like, they, yeah, and, and their whole thing is they sort of, like, set it and forget it when it comes to planets. And the only sort of major intervention beyond the Deviants was, like, oh, we have to also have these Eternals because the Deviants have gone wrong. And, again, to go to the comics, the line between Eternals and Deviants in the comics is, like, very is way more blurry it has a lot to do with like who get about it has a lot to do with stable genetics you can see why i kind of find the eternals comics to be like a little bit on the weirdly racial side in a way that i'm not <laughs> oh super boy. comfortable with um it has a lot more to do with like stable genetics and like the the deviants can die and change but the eternals can't or whatever but in this story that's not really it it's that like you said they made these deviants as kind of like machines to protect humans but the machines didn't work so they sent these other guys to go do it and to take care of the deviants as well yeah i like i like that they they made a predator to prey on predators and they had to make new predators to prey on those it just <laughs> yeah. you get this notion 
going into this, like Arishem or the Celestials, whoever's pulling the strings is just like, what? stop fucking swallowing new animals to get the last animal you swallowed. <laughs> like, don't fucking swallow swallow a, a, a bird to catch the fly, dude. Just yeah. fucking there's let the There's a human animals... at the bottom of the sea. There's a, yeah. deviant, there's a human in the stomach, the deviant of the eternal, the density at the bottom of the and, sea. It comes, yeah. back to that, it comes back to that thing of like, I mean, surely, if you just let these planets do their thing, they'll figure it out. This goes back to the argument before of, like, I don't know. I don't I don't think this ever happened on our Earth, and we eventually figured out a way to, like, hunt lions to death and stuff. <laughs> like, we're, we'll figure out a way to get that little fucking baby celestial out of our big kinder egg. But it is... I don't I don't know. It's it's one of those weird things that, like, coming away from it, even not even from, like, a philosophical perspective, but just within the within the context of the whole Marvel universe, does this movie kind of like in a way sort of absolve Thanos of his whole thing? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't care. I want to make that clear, <laughs> but by the end of it, you're like, ah, oh, I guess Thanos, Thanos maybe knew about this. I don't know. Well, in theory, again, the comics, Thanos is a fucking eternal. He's like an eternal gone wrong. Or is he a deviant? He's like, oh. he's from the planet where all the other ones are from. And he's like the brother. Of the, it's a, the, it's, but isn't uh, this what's being set up with Harry Styles coming in as the brother? And then Kit Harrington isn't who is Harry, he? Who was Harry Styles? He was Harry Styles Eris. comes in as the, yeah, Eros. And he's like the brother of Thanos. And then isn't Eros, Kit. Eros, a.k.a. Star Fox. And isn't Kit Harrington Black Knight, who is also a part of the family? I right? think so. Or is he part of a different family? Black Knight I'm less familiar with because uh, I didn't. Okay, yeah. I don't think that's a Jack Kirby product. I'm, just, I'm a real Kirby there's head. That bit, there's that bit at the end where he's talking to Cersei and he's like, you know, just to let you know, I've got this really complex family history, so i got to tell you the truth too. And then when Harry Styles comes in and he says something about how like he's the something of the Black Knight and I missed it. And I was like, oh shit, because I'm not like super versed on the comics, I was like, oh, okay, so is, is Harry Styles somehow related to or connected to Kit Harrington's character and that somehow they're setting us up for this like – Thanos, Eros, um, uh, and then like Kit Harrington's Black Knight thing that's going to be the next kind of like Eternals two or whatever. Maybe its own standalone project. I don't. I don't know. Who knows, yeah. But I'm excited to join you guys again to discuss it on Show Me. The <laughs> <laughs> All I know about the Black Knight is that he's like a rude guy with a cool sword. Which, to be fair, pretty good <laughs> archetype. But like, that is a pretty good archetype. But, like, you know, I don't know much beyond that. Not enough that. rude tudes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm excited yeah. to see uh, old Jon Snow himself swing a sword around while quipping with the best of them up on the silver screen. Yeah, him, and, him and Blade saying rude things about vampires. What's Harry, St- Harry Styles is the One Direction guy, right? Yep. Oh, okay. Well, cool. yeah. He's the handsome guy who shows up, bro. When he showed up, bro, don't act like you don't know this. Like, let me see your saved photos in your Instagram profile. I I knew he was a One Direction guy, but I didn't know what he looked like. I've never met him or anything, and he hasn't been in. Wasn't he in Dunkirk? (laughs) Uh, yes, so. he he hasn't been in anything yeah. else, right? That like he's just been in a um, couple of big movies. Yeah, yeah, it's a newish thing. His turn to acting. I think Dunkirk was like the first one that was like, "Hey, guess what?" And and they did it in a way that I thought was actually really well done too, because uh-huh. it wasn't like he Who was, was he the centerpiece. I, I don't remember him being in that. He was one of the one of the just ground one of the soldiers. Yeah, and it was kind of great that they kind of placed him in that role, and I thought he was phenomenal. Like, if you didn't know it was Harry Styles as being the One Direction guy, as you yeah, said. Yeah, there was never um, a time when I was watching like, oh, Dunkirk where I thought to myself, oh, one of these guys is from a fucking boy band or whatever, and they just stuck him in here. And, I mean, Dunkirk, Dunkirk, good movie. Anyway, uh, wrapping up our conversation about Dunkirk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I do have a question. So Makari makes, um, makes a, uh, asks a question or makes a comment at the end of the film, and I, I couldn't help but notice the... the the illusion, right? But she said that, you know, these other people need to learn about kind of the truth of, of this celestial plan. And then she says, the truth will set them free. And so, like, to me, I'm like, ding, 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 Bible, religion, okay, Christianity. And obviously there's so much in, um, just in, in Western mythology, whether it's in comic books or film or whatever else, that is derived from the sort of Judeo-Christian legacy that has shaped so much of Western society. So what I wonder is, is this a sort of, because, you know, Wisecrack made, I think, a really kind of like uh, insightful video, like just a little quick take on um, this being a, a film with certain theological resonance. So is this in some ways a sort of like retelling of, of, um, 
a Christian myth or a sort of like deconstruction of the Christian myth and therefore an offering of a different type of theological myth that explains history and its relationship to the cosmos. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would sort of patting myself on the back or like repeating myself because I, I did a lot of work on that video, but like, I cool. think so. I think it's very much the second. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very much like, yeah, this is the phenomenon of life is explainable. The phenomenon of planets are explainable. The phenomenon of entire galaxies are explainable because there's large stone guys with coals in their head who shoot galaxies out of their hands. Mm. And so it's explainable. And so like the, the, the moral authority or like the exis- the sort of metaphysical existential authority of like a God, big, big G God, like doesn't compute in the same way when you break it down that way. And it's knowable. Uh, and the ineffability of God's like a big, you know, that's a big check mark in the God box. Like, and that's no longer, I mean, they're ineffable in a sense, but like they're knowable to a degree and like they can, they can die or not be born. Like we've seen that. And so it does really kind of like take that out of it. Cause like where, if the celestials are around, like presumably like there's not a Judeo Christian God, like there's not like a big bearded guy going to show up and be like, Oh, you thought the celestials were powerful. No, 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 no. It looks like Adam Warlock, but like, yeah, I think it really is sort of like a, a refutation of or like a deconstruction of the Judeo-Christian myth in the sense that it is sort of saying we can clear out that space and create our own morals, our own choices, our own space, uh, sort of independent of any of that stuff. Um, at least that was obviously my read because that's what Burns and Amanda and I put in the video. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, I think that I do think it's like very Nietzschean sort of like make your own morals, like to get away from the sort of like God myth stuff. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you all think about that. Uh, I, what I think about is that the video was excellent. Um, I even told told Michael on uh, on Twitter, kind of half jokingly, I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to say in this episode of the podcast because I think y'all did a really great job of wrapping up a lot of the really interesting stuff on it. Um, That's why I was already coming on this podcast because I was like, <laughs> I, I wrote down a lot of those thoughts already and told them to Bert. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you're here because uh, yeah, I'm not. Not feeling so hot, and uh, this the the chat has been very distracting today. There's a very uh, there's a very precocious young man in the chat. I'm not going to mention him by name because I think uh, that that would just send him over the moon. Fuel uh, the fire. <laughs> he's just telling everyone about how uh, how all Marvel movies fucking suck or whatever, and it's like, dude, just shut up. Like uh, it's just. I, no one, no one cares. Like we're we're here just to talk about movies and and have a good time. Maybe you didn't like this, but you do this. I've seen your name pop up constantly during every time we have any superhero discussion on this channel, and I think that like I don't know, maybe maybe just chill out. <laughs> I'm not a huge superhero film fan, right? Like it's just not it's not the the genre that was made for me, right? Um. I get them, and I am always interested to see because I think storytelling is a, a wonderful expression of the both conscious and unconscious um, realities of of um, of the society in which the story is told. Right, and so for me, I go into these stories, and I'm like, cool. What what are we telling ourselves? Like, what's this story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves? And so I don't love them, but what I do wonder is this. I wonder if there's so much big, huge, the world needs to be saved stuff that comes out all the time, all the time. Like there's how, how many Marvel films have come out? Seven of them. How many DC films have come out? Like 10 of them, right? Like in the past, like, I mean, it's, I'm just making up numbers, more Marvel films, obviously, but uh, in the past, like 12 months, yeah. right? Like, yeah, it's like, so it's like in the past year, we just have like 10 of these stories that are like, this is the world. And these are the big world questions. And I like thinking of that, obviously. I mean, I'm a philosopher by training. So for me, ask the big questions. But I almost feel a little bit of exhaustion because we we are expressing these stories, but we don't really get a chance to digest them. So it's almost like too much, right? It's like... It's like the world has these gods and we're going to kill the gods. Are we not going to kill the gods? And the next one is like ah, this Malthusian story on overpopulation and going to kill half the universe. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Our planet's not sustainable. And, and then it's like this other story about these gods coming to Earth and are these monsters coming. to And it's like it's just so much all the time that I wonder if it's like overload. And because everything is so big and so sensationalized anyway on social media and on TV, et cetera, et cetera, it's just, it feels like I'm almost like my nervous system can't handle it. And I felt that as soon as the film started yesterday, 
And I'm sitting in that theater. I had a moment where I was like, fuck, okay. Like, it's just too much all the time, you know? And we maybe our stories don't need to, to, to always be so much all the time, which is why I love something like Nomadland because it's a single little story that is also a universal. It's a singular but universal story rather than being like, I'm going to tell you a theory of everything every time I make a product. And yeah. I don't know. I, Does I think that make sense? These movies definitely get caught in like an escalation trap. Mm-hmm. Like if you think back to the first Iron Man movie, the big climactic battle scene in that is Robert Downey Jr. and Jeff Bridges punching each other on a freeway. Um, like granted they have big fucking robot suits or whatever, but like, you know, the, as they just kind of escalate and escalate with a few exceptions, I think that, uh, the, the Ant-Man movies are kind of fun. Cause it's like, oh, we're doing a, a little heist. And then they have that really fun conceit in the final battle between Ant-Man and uh, bad Ant-Man or whatever his name is where they're like f- fighting on a uh, on a toy train and every time they cut to a wide of like the train just kind of falling off the track it totally deflates the stakes in, in just like a really <laughs> funny and uh, sort of self-aware way um i just i i kind of there's a part of me that after they they did end game i was like okay well this is sort of my off ramp you know they they pulled it off. It's a pretty pretty impressive thing. You know, some of the movies may be hit or miss, but you, once again, you you can't argue they they connected with audiences in a major way for and they kept the ball in the air for like twelve years. That's pretty impressive. However, you feel about the pictures. Um, but then I got hired to talk about movies on a podcast, so now I have to keep watching them. <laughs> and I do <laughs> just wish. I think that this movie and Shang Chi a little bit do deviate from the formula. They try some new things. They you know, they they look a little bit different. This one especially has a, a different look and a different vibe to it. Real colors, real real colors, real flavors. Um, but I, I I do wish that like it, it, they they could take this opportunity where instead of like having to constantly continue to escalate, they could do a few of those little victory laps again. Like uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy was a big movie. But it still it still feels small and character oriented in a way that uh, this one the characters kind of get lost in the sauce when the characters really should be the strength of this movie and and I I wish that they would just let them kind of have it out and let let them have a big uh, have have a big set piece emotional set piece be about whether or not they're going to go against their programming. And, uh, and, you know, if they're going to defy their Lord or whatever. And I think every time they touch on that, it just ends up feeling like lip service. Whereas I, I think the the big questions in this is, is kind of where it should be living. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It, it, it just feels like a lot of the time they're like, okay, well, enough of that. We got to bring another... Uh, what was Lux your thing? Another snake dog out of the river yeah, to attack John sp- Snow? <laughs> spaghetti eel, whatever. Yeah, well, and yeah. now with the new Spider-Man, you're going to be getting the multiverse. So it's like, Can we so get not that only... with the, the Into the Spider-Verse? Is, there, is it kind of uh, like yeah. similar, similar? Yeah, tone? you know, you got Doctor Strange that's doing his, his like, uh, dimensional bending and stuff like that. So there's, which is an interesting thing. I just... I wonder if it's if it's we're so just caught up in so much of the current discourses that like kind of the techno scientific discourse is shaping that it kind of prevents us from actually having what I think are even more interesting stories like like okay so Guardians of the Galaxy works really well for me because it's kind of like a space adventure and it's like this this team of space people going on and solving a case it's almost like like a like a James Bond kind of like you got a you got a mission and you got to solve the mission and of course there are huge stakes but it's like really about this crew and them like dealing with the problem and so you really get invested in the crew and the kind of for lack of a better term the humanity of it because even when you're writing about non-humans you're still anthropomorphizing them because it's humans telling the story right so there's something about that whereas i feel like if you try to get too metaphysical try to get too cosmological at some point you're going to run into a boundary problem and so then it's like okay so then you got to go back inward or something but then it just kind of like detaches me from it like i, I get a little lost and in for, it for a, what it's a, a worth i also think guardians of the galaxy in addition to something like iron man 3 which is very clearly a shane black movie 
but Guardians really do seem like the work of James Gunn. Like, yeah. he, he mm. really seems to have a sense of authorship with those films down down to every frame, the way that he's staging some of those in-camera jokes and things like that. So I, I think a lot could be said for uh, uh, giving a little bit more creative control of the directors with these things and letting them do something a bit more distinct going forward. Because, you know, not every one of these movies, like we've seen with the last three that have come out, uh, Shang-Chi did really well, as I mentioned before, but not every one of these movies is going to be a billion dollar success. Maybe you don't mm. have to dig yourself into a $250 million hole every time you make one of them. Like people are going to go out, a, a, a reliable enough segment of the audience is going to go out and see a Marvel movie because it's a Marvel movie. Like if you want to tell some weirder, smaller, more esoteric stories. You got the franchise series on Disney Plus now, but I could also, you know, see a world in which they they scale back their vision for some of these in-between movies and then go really big for the team-up movies. With this one, it was a big team-up movie that didn't have any of the in-between to lay the groundwork, so it kind of gets caught in between there. Yeah, the two, my friend Forrest, uh, who is a a real Marvel movie watching man... (laughs) Uh, a real freak for the shit, a real, uh, a real slop pig for the Marvel sludge. He said, I think very wisely, that all the best Marvel movies are the Marvel movies that are least interested in being Marvel movies and are more interested in just being the movie that they are. Hmm. I think that Winter Soldier, Ragnarok, both Guardians of the Galaxy, Shang-Chi are all very much like they're playing Marvel movie rules. They're in the MCU but they are way more interested in executing the specific type of movie. And sometimes it's even like a genre distinction where like fucking, like you were saying, there's like a sort of space operatic Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. or the spy movie that is Civil War or the sort of Black like... Black Panther has a little James Bond element. Yeah, too. Black Panther's a little James Bond going on. Ragnarok has like this like very, like very present like satire comedy element happening. And I think it's those movies that are like a nether genre with superheroes rather than a superhero movie that tend to work the best. Um, and I and I I would think part of the reason, Austin, about this anxiety you're talking about is kind of related to that, that, like, you said a phrase that, like, I say all the time to Burns for some reason, which is that, like, media is how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. I think I even snuck it into mm. one of our videos because I'm a little goblin. <laughs> um, no, but that's but, insightful. Like, yeah, I think I got that one into one of our videos. I think it was actually the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard video, uh, which hilariously I was able to trick them to talk, letting me talk about why bad movies are actually good. Uh, implicitly implying <laughs> that their movie was bad, even though they paid us to talk about it. Huge win for Lux. But the the thing is that the, the world we live in now is endless sort of like high school debate style. Like, if we don't fix this problem, everyone dies. No way. There's no way out of it. It's all the time. It's uh, fucking, they teach critical race theories in school. The union will collapse and America will fall into a civil war and nukes will fly or COVID will kill everyone or environment, like global warming will kill everyone. Some of these things are more true than others, but that's like a, the world we live in is in that space, like is in that world of huge stakes. And so if the movies are reflecting that anxiety back, it makes sense, even if it isn't maybe psychically curative in the way that I would like movies to be. That's um, exactly it. And I, I like think it's reflecting back an unhealthy world, and it, it sucks. And it sucks, especially superhero movies, because like I fucking love comic books, and I hate how much. But, so then, this is my crazy. this is my fear is then it's pathological. Yeah. So this, like you just said, it's not psychically. I don't know how you said it, but it's not psychically adjusted or psychically it's healthy psychic, or whatever. It's psychically it, curative, but yeah. Yes, curative, exactly, because you can't adjust when you're just pathologically, like mimetically re uh, re exploring your own anxiety. Um, then it becomes a type of obsessive compulsive fascination or fetish with your own anxiety, rather than trying to, you know, kind of explore them in a way towards adjustment, not necessarily towards reconciliation or ignorance of the thing. But yeah, yeah, there's got to be a, a talking cure in the form so of media. And to, <laughs> to that end, I was going to say that if you're if you are the kind of person who like uh, gets really upset about like the kind of movies that Disney is making right now, like I got bad news for you. If Disney wasn't making Marvel movies, they wouldn't be making anything better. Like yeah. this fucking company used to make a movie a week. Like back when they owned a chain of theaters, they used to release 50 movies a year and they were all dog shit. They were like fucking the Boatniks and the computer war tennis shoes and the Swiss family Robinson. Like if, if it weren't like genre defining and, and box office smashing superhero movies, they'd be making some other garbage. So like if you if, if you think that 
oh, if if uh, if Disney would just put down the Marvel busy box for once, they'd unleash the, a treasure trove of of wonderful contemporary cinema. You're just wrong. Like they're, yeah. <laughs> they're they're just going to keep pumping out Marvel movies and Star Wars movies. And and if they didn't have those, they'd go acquire Thundercats and make seventeen of that. So God, like, give me give just, me seventeen Panthro movies. <laughs> So like, just chill, y'all. Just fucking chill out. Yeah. Well, on the on the just chill, y'all note, we do have to wrap up this conversation. So I just want to say real quick, twenty seconds, final thoughts, Lux, go. It's too bad they started Eternals pre-production before they got the rights to the X-Men because they really wanted to make an X-Men movie, and this is what we got instead, and that sucks because the X-Men are vastly superior to the Eternals. Raymond. Uh, check out the video that Lux and uh, Mr. Michael Burns worked on together. Uh, it's a, a great video. It's only yeah. like 10 minutes long. It's kind of a little quick hit. Um, and I, I think that they they cover uh, all this stuff far better, far more eloquently than I could I, I, I could possibly care to in my, my current uh, physical state. And <laughs> with made, el- with regards to the eloquence... Big shout out to Amanda Shirker, who actually wrote oh, the very, yes, very yes, good of words. Course. The um, very Amanda, good words. Burns and I just like threw a bunch of ideas at her, and she turned it into a really excellent script. Yeah, Amanda crushed cool. it as usual. Uh, uh, so shout out to Amanda as well. And uh, apologies that I can't fucking care about these goddamn movies anymore. Uh, but I'm really excited to talk about Spider-Man uh, in a month. Hey, all you true crime fans. This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. I, I, I'm kind of, I don't know. I like, I, I feel like I'm broken. Like before I was kind of like I had Marvel fatigue and now maybe I'm a, a little bit of like, a, I'm curious. Like it's like a, like a, a, after the fatigue, I'm like, well, maybe I'll take a little Marvel nourishment. I don't really know. So I'm kind of like in this in-between space and I don't really know what to think. So, um, maybe you out there can tell me what to think. Uh, we're not going to dig into the mailbag this week because next week, all mailbag, all day, all the time we're going to be answering all your questions from the past however long it is we're going to dig through there and we're going to spend an hour just freaking answering stuff so make sure you email us movies at wisecrack.co that's movies at wisecrack.co or of course you can call us at 1-213-534-8807 that's 1-213-534-8807 also just a reminder go follow us on twitter smtm underscore pod Hit us up on Patreon so you can get access to the bonus content. Uh, check out our other podcasts, Culture Binge, Squanch. Obviously, we're not releasing new episodes of Squanch because Rick and Morty is paused, but go back and check out the back catalog. And, yeah, that's all the goodness. Where can people find you on the internet, Lux? Um, blammo. I'm on Twitter, at Tailboy. Uh, that's T-A-I-L underscore B-O-I. And also, I stream uh, old, old or now new Japanese RPGs on Twitch at twitch.tv slash pixelgoblins with my aforementioned friend Forrest and the various wrestling shows I work on will be back eventually but they're not yet so I don't have anything in that respect okay awesome and it, are things kind of back to normal where you are like I'm other than Texas, the wrestling been acting like it's been normal forever oh, even yeah. though I'm constantly terrified oh <laughs> um, yeah my mom's outside Waco so yeah she reports on that to me all the time so yeah 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 alright Raymond what about you brother where can people find you yeah you can come scream at me on Twitter and Letterboxd I'm at crematoria um that's it. Sick. You can find me um, on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y, all that good stuff. All right. We're going to get out of here. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining. Follow Patreon, all that good shit. Tell us what you thought about Eternals. Uh, mailbag podcast episode next week. Raymond. Give us your low energy send out. Yeah, and as always, folks, when asked if she would be interested in directing a superhero movie, Jane Campion said, I hate them. I actually hate them. <laughs> I was thinking um, Lynn Ramsey, uh, Ratcatcher. God, I love that movie. <laughs> what a debut, right? And what a career she's had beyond that as well. Morvan Collar, uh, You Were Never Really Here, uh, most recently. Yeah. Phenomenal film. Yeah, she's. She's one of the best filmmakers working today. Yeah, and then I think we can't 
it seems like a film in the horror genre that has kind of changed the landscape of how horror is done is the recent Get Out, which I was going to bring up um, some recent ones, which I forget. I forget that that's a debut feature because for some reason it was handled with such confidence and it it landed so heavy in the kind of like public consciousness that it just almost doesn't make sense that it was a debut feature because people don't think of it in that way, but it was, the which thing is all I the more impressive. Get out. I think it's I think it's a great script. I think Us is a much better directed movie, but but when you were going I into Us. You were going into it having seen Get Out. So you know he's going to have his, some tricks up his sleeve. Yes. You know it's things are probably not going to be as they seem. The great thing about Get Out is that if you avoided trailers, I, I mean, I did. I was able to go into that theater, just let him work his fucking magic. And when... Same. When, yeah, when, when the screw starts to turn in that movie... I mean, depends. I mean, pretty early on, there's some some stuff in there where she's talking about, you know, oh, yeah, my dad would have voted for Obama three times and blah, blah, blah. And you're already kind of going like, oh, boy, they might be trying a little too hard. <laughs> and then when when yeah. things really take off, I was so shocked because I, I went, saw the movie, loved it, watched the trailer for it when I got home. And they fucking give away everything. Mm. Um, you know, I don't want to be old man on porch yelling about, you know, uh, movie trailers these days. But he he's definitely at the vanguard for contemporary horror. But right up there with him, I, I think Hereditary had a huge impact. Um, I Can't Stop Singing the Praises of Raw, another one of my favorite movies. Uh, speaking of The Witch, another it was another great Rob, debut Robert horror, recent horror. Yeah. yeah. And is It Follows? Is It Follows a director? It is not. Idea? That was uh, David Robert Mitchell's second feature. Okay. He had done a, uh, a movie okay. called The Myth of the American Sleepover that's just like kind of a, a quiet little hangout movie. Um, and then It Follows is like taking that hangout formula and dropping a demon into it. Um, <laughs> okay. But I, uh, I really like David Robert Mitchell. I'm, I'm bummed that uh, Under the Silver Lake didn't do so hot because I, I feel like it maybe slowed his career down a little bit. I hope he, uh, he bounces back because his, his movies are always interesting. They're always something new and fresh and exciting. So what is it that, um, that, that makes us praise that this is a debut feature is it just that we're like surprised that oh my god this filmmaker came out of nowhere or is it that we're kind of like hey let's turn our attention to an artist that is commanding our focus for hopefully the next 20 30 40 years is i'm kind of wondering like why why do we care so much about this being a debut is it because it's an announcement or is it because we're kind of like wow how the fuck did they do that or is it both (laughs) <laughs> I think it's, it, there's definitely a little bit of both. I think for me, there's an excitement in like, uh, you know, finding somebody like Damien Chazelle with Whiplash and then being like. And if you want to hear more of this chat and other bonus episodes, head on over to wisecrack.com slash Patreon. You can sign up for as little as two bucks to support the channel and you'll get access to all these goodies and a bunch of other good ad free content. So patreon.com slash Wisecrack. We love y'all. Peace.